0: Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to this latest in our beer and Brexit series. It's a massive. Jacob Rees Mogg, who's just come hot footing it from the House of Commons, uh, where the vote's taken place, of which more are none. Jacob, I'm sorry, it's not quite champagne with Boris and Co. Uh, I believe you enjoyed <laughs> last night, but I hope you enjoy yourself anyway. Thank you. Jacob is, of course, uh, the Conservative MP for North East Somerset, uh, having failed to become the MP for Central Fife in 1999 wanted to ask you if you uh, were secretly quite pleased to have lost that one, but uh, I won't. Uh, he was elected in 2010, so his front row seat for all the political funding then. and as you all know he sits on the exiting the European I believe you're a fan of cricket and a Somerset fan. I am indeed, yes, that's absolutely right. So, did you go watch Somerset when they had Viv Richards? And- uh, I, I did indeed. The
1: very first match I watched at Taunton was Uh, the John Player League, so Sunday match, limited overs, 40 overs, Somerset versus Kent. And when I tell you that the highest scorer for Somerset was Joel Garner, you will
0: realise that Somerset lost. Well, I've reached that age where I I sort of look back with uh, fond memories of the days when sporting events were sponsored by fag companies, uh, as it used to be. So, I (laughs) I want to start with what happened yesterday. Because obviously it was very important and I suppose the first thing to ask you is were you taken aback by the size of the defeat?
1: Yes I was. Um, with these things you have your numbers and you know who you've spoken to and your team's spoken to who is likely to be on your side but you always expect a good deal of slippage because there is a mystique about the whips office. You think they will be able to get people back and so had we believed our own numbers, it was the sort of region we were getting to. But of course we didn't. We didn't think that was likely to be um, so, such a solid turnout of, of Eurosceptics as there was. Um, so I was surprised. I, I thought it would be significant.
0: I mean, isn't there just a bit of a chronic inability to count in politics? Because, you know, I mean, going back to the vote of no confidence in December, I mean, all these numbers are bandied around and they all proved to be wrong. And whether this is my memory going, but I seem to recall a time when the whips knew what they were doing and knew something changed. Yes, something very important has
1: changed, and that is the Fixed Term Parliament Act. The Fixed Term Parliament Act makes it much easier to vote against the government on any routine vote. Not like the vote this evening. The vote this evening was a vote of no confidence under the terms of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. Had the government lost, it's highly likely there would have been a general election. But all other votes are not any longer votes that could create a general election. If we were operating prior to 2011, the government may well have made yesterday the confidence vote, which would have faced people like me with a real dilemma. Do we vote for a deal that we think is terrible, or do we vote um, to bring the government down, lose the whip, and leave parliament? It's It's quite a serious dilemma, which has been taken away, and that, I think, has affected the ability to count because people are much freer than they were prior to 2011.
0: Well, I have to ask you this as a follow-on, then. We did our, our podcast with Michael Heseltine last week, and one question we asked him was, which do you fear most, Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister? And he made the most remarkable face, I have to say, at this point in the conversation and couldn't quite bring himself to answer for a while. So which would you rather, Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister or as leaving Which would you fear most, Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister or us leaving the European Union under the terms of the deal negotiated by Prime Minister May?
1: Oh, um, the terms that the Prime Minister negotiated were better than Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. Almost anything is better than Jeremy Corbyn as as Prime Minister. And that's not because I think he uh, is not a principled man, but I think the solutions he has to problems are ones that we know from experience fail. And therefore, government led by him would do great
0: damage to the country. Okay, I mean, for the record, Michael Heseltine said Jeremy Corbyn would be his preferred option because it's only for five years, whereas Brexit is forever. But well, there we go. Shouldn't the Prime Minister have resigned after losing that vote? Um, I mean, fixed term Parliament Act notwithstanding, it was the signature part of her premiership—the only part of her premiership, really, to all intents and purposes. Well, as you know, I
1: put down a motion Mm -hmm. of no confidence in her with others uh, last year, the end of last year, uh, which I lost. And I thought, and the reason I did it when I did, that that was the last chance to change a prime minister before Brexit. That at that point, there was still a chance of getting a new leader in by the sort of first week of the new year. And with a period over Christmas where nothing much happens anyway, certainly Brussels isn't doing very much and that you could afford that amount of time. I think for a prime minister to resign with, what is it, 70-something days left before Brexit would be quite irresponsible, that most of that time beaten up by the Tories electing a new leader. So you would have no direction, no ability to negotiate. You would have an interim government
0: unable to command events, and therefore I think she was right to stay. So a cynic would suggest that this Prime Minister has no direction and no ability to negotiate, so what, what is there to lose? I mean, a, a cynic would say that, but I don't know such difficult and trying people as cynics. I know decent, <laughs> honourable and kindly people. OK, we shall, we shall move on then. What, what do you think Mrs May should do next I mean, with regard to Brexit?
1: Well, we know what she's doing so far. She's arranged to speak to Jeremy Corbyn and to um, Ian Blackford, which is the right thing to do because it's what she said she would do, and to have discussions cross-party is an offer worth making. It won't get very far. Uh, What she needs to do is to look at the numbers you were talking about counting. The thing that really strikes me is that the majority against the government was 230. The number of Eurosceptic MPs who voted against the government was 111, plus the DUP, 10, is 121, you swing 121 votes over, the government wins by a majority of 12. To get her business through, the Prime Minister needs Nigel Dodds, the ERG, other Eurosceptics, not the Labour Party. And therefore, how does she get us on board? Well that basically relates to the backstop. The backstop is the worst part of the withdrawal agreement. It's not popular with pro-Europeans particularly. It's not something they've gone to the barricades for. They have different objectives. So what she needs to do to get her deal through, or an variant of it, is to see what the the RGDUP want and go to Brussels and say, look, I think I can get this deal through if we get rid of the backstop. That would be the next best option. And that might suit the um, EU as well.
0: But what if she went the other way? That is to say, rather than going more in the direction you favour, going more in the direction that the Labour Party favours by actually embracing more in terms of a customs union, possibly dabbling with aspects of the single market she isn't yet. She could rustle up the votes that way, couldn't she?
1: Well, I don't think she could, because you're then talking about getting 116 Mm -hmm. Labour MPs. But it's more than that, because you would find that more Conservative MPs voted against the deal if it got any softer. So the Prime Minister would end up having to get the deal through with more Conservatives voting against than voting in favour. There's no way to lead a political
0: party or a country. So I don't think that's a realistic option for the Prime Minister to take. So, so in the end what you're saying is she, she's doing the right thing by consulting Jeremy Corbyn and the SNP, but then she could go away and do exactly the opposite of what they will the advise her to do.
1: Well, I'm not sure that Jeremy Corbyn will give her any very clear advice anyway. and, and, um, this is not unreasonable. The job of the opposition is to oppose. It's not the job of the opposition to make the life of the government easy. And Jeremy Corbyn has um, tempered his policy to make it as difficult as possible for the government. I would be very, very surprised if he went in to see the Prime Minister and said, here's the answer to your problem. You do this, you'll have 245 Labour votes, uh, and Bob's your uncle. Um, The SNP doesn't tend to do that either. So I think it's right to consult, it's right to discuss, and miracles do occasionally happen, but I wouldn't hold your breath for a cross-party solution. I think the um, option that is being considered in government circles is more can they do a deal with uh, Hillary Benn and Yvette Cooper. Mm -hmm. And I think they will quickly realise that the numbers just aren't there. That may get them... On a really, really good day to 30, 35, but then there are 121 against them. So it simply doesn't shift enough votes into their column. And one of the interesting things about yesterday's vote was how few Labour MPs backed the deal. Because if you're a Labour MP, there is no point in backing the deal when the majority is going to go down from 230 to 228. You only want to back the deal if your vote is pivotal. Hmm. And with the numbers as they are, the Labour votes aren't going to be pivotal in the Yvette Cooper, Hillary Benn camp, and therefore it's hard to see that it's worth them doing it in the first place.
0: Did you get the sense from some of your colleagues, I mean, I certainly did over the last couple of days, that this was basically a free hit. Everyone knew she was going to lose. It didn't really matter. Uh, Everyone knew that she was going to bring something back and they could treat that as the serious vote. So in a sense, this was just a sort of letting off steam exercise for a lot of people. They might have been slightly taken aback by the scale of the defeat they inflicted upon the Prime Minister, but do you think there are colleagues on your benches who actually are now looking for an excuse to to change their mind and vote with something that looks like this? Um, A number of people who were in the division lobby
1: last night were very, very reluctant to be there. As one friend of mine said to me, he didn't go into politics to vote against a Conservative government. It's not what any of us wants to do. And so I think it's not a free hit in that sense Mm. and that um, nobody wanted the scale to be as large as it was. They wanted to win but they didn't want the scale to be so large but equally people didn't want to end their political careers and look back and say I voted for a deal that I thought was terrible or I abstained on the biggest issue in my political career. And therefore people were driven through the lobbies not because it was a free hit, but because the logic of their position
0: compelled them through the lobbies, some cases very reluctantly. What some people have tried to do, I mean Boris Johnson was at it yesterday, is sort of link the scale of the defeat to the Prime Minister's ability to renegotiate with Brussels. And you could spin that one of two ways, couldn't you? What Boris Johnson said was, it's a massive defeat that strengthens her hand in negotiating with Brussels. I rather see it the other way, which is if she'd lost by fewer... She could have said, we're well, within touching distance. Actually, if you give us concessions now, we can get this over the line. Because at the moment, Brussels looks at the number 230 and says, it doesn't really matter what we do. But you always need to look at the swing, don't you? Mm-hmm. And
1: the swing is 115. Yeah. And the swing is the Eurosceptics who were voting against the deal. We're slightly more. And I haven't included the Eurosceptic the Labour members, so mm-hmm. Kate Hoey and so on. I haven't included them. So the argument to Brussels must surely be If I can do something that is in line with the thoughts of those 120, I really can get it through. It's there. And that, I think, is in a way easier than had it been a loss of 100, where you would had the most determined
0: opponents purely rebelling, rather than it being so broadly based. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to the back. So I was, I was actually hoping to spend most of this time talking about politics, but I suspect we're going to have to talk about the details of the backstop
1: and stuff. Yes, I, I, I do a fortnightly um, podcast, mm-hmm. the Mogcast, with Conservative mm-hmm. Home, uh, and um, Paul Goodman says to me at the beginning of almost every one, uh, once again we're going to have to talk about Brexit. I'm afraid, however much one tries to avoid the subject, uh, it is difficult under current political yeah, circumstances. No, absolutely.
0: Are you worried that your party might split? Over Brexit, I mean, particularly if the Prime Minister decides to try and dabble with a softer form of Brexit. I know you don't like the soft, hard, but with a permanent customs union or something like that, are you, are you worried that that could have really serious consequences for the Conservative Party?
1: I think there are considerable risks. Um, I think the whole temper of politics is very divisive at the moment. People are very interested in politics, but they're very divided, and that's true within the Conservative Party as well. And there's also a divide within the Conservative Party between the hierarchy and the stages down. Mm-hmm. So the most pro-European part of the Conservative Party is the cabinet. As you move down the ranks, it becomes more and more Eurosceptic till you get to the membership, and the voters, who seem to be 70% Eurosceptic, and. The thing that splits parties is actually when the leadership has become completely remote from the membership and the members. And yes, of course there's a risk of that if the Prime Minister were to go down and let's stay in the single market and customs union approach. Because the only countries that are in both the single market and the customs union are members of the European Union. So it wouldn't be Brexit in any sense at all.
0: But I mean, paradoxically, I mean, off the top of my head, if you look at the sort of recent history of the Conservative Party, your most successful leaders, either the ones that win elections, have been the ones that have been the least Eurosceptic, haven't they? I mean, when you went through that period in the early two thousands, well, um, when you were campaigning against, I mean, uh, Margaret Thatcher won three elections in a row. Well, let's let's talk post Thatcher. Well, well,
1: well, but that you take out. Because almost, that's, well, but that's well. when the
0: division really well, that, made itself felt, wasn't it, after Maastricht? or during the Maastricht universe. Well, Well, Ma- Maastricht was very important in that, but Margaret Thatcher
1: was a very, Eurosceptic leader. W- what's the first thing she does in office? She says, I want my money back. You know, th- it's already an issue then. It-, it splits the Labour Party at that mm-hmm. point. Um, the Conservative Party is broadly pro-membership of the common market at that stage, very much more limited organisation. But the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister, uh, is much tougher... On Europe, so no. I think our most successful leader has been most Eurosceptic, and interestingly, David Cameron was much more Eurosceptic in campaigning than he was uh, in government, uh, and the,
0: the consequences followed from that. So, okay. I mean, the moments arrived. Right. I mean, could you vote for any sort of withdrawal agreement that contained the backstop?
1: No. Okay. The back. The backstop. Um, is very difficult territory. Uh, why? First of all, no end date. Mm-hmm. Um, I can live with the European Court of Justice having some involvement in citizens' rights for eight years. I don't like it. I wish it weren't there. Um, but in eight years, I still won't be sixty. You know, it's all fine. That, that eight years goes remarkably quickly. Um, But the backstop has no end date. It divides the United Kingdom between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, which is something that as a Conservative and Unionist is a very strong red line. It leaves the European Court of Justice involved in our affairs in everything that is covered by the backstop as the final arbiter of law. And we pay £39 billion for the privilege.
0: Do you understand... I mean, we've done this conversation before, so I don't want to go over stuff we've, we've... Fought over before, but do you, do you understand the concerns of the European Union and particularly of the Republic of Ireland? No, I think they're um, a negotiating position,
1: and the government's been amazingly weak in giving into it. That the EU, the Irish government, and the UK government have all said they will not impose a hard border. And what? that's, but, but there will be differences, and it's silly to pretend there will be no difference once we've left the European Union. The whole point of leaving is to be different. But excise checks take place remotely from the border. You can have checks without them being physically on the border, and physically on the border is uh, the risk that people are so concerned about and is the issue that flows
0: from those not directly referred to by the um, Good Friday Belfast Agreement. But to be fair to Taoiseach, what they've said is they're not gonna immediately impose a hard border in the event of a no deal Brexit, but he's also said the only way ultimately to avoid a border is to have customs and regulatory alignment. Well, that is a matter for them, what
1: border they wish to impose. The UK government said it won't impose a border full stop. But you don't need customs and regulatory alignment. We don't have alignment on excise duties currently, and that doesn't need a hard border. And excise duties are not dissimilar from customs duties. I mean, the price of diesel, the price of petrol, the price of gin is different in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And there is an element of smuggling, and there are checks remotely from the border. And all of that
0: happens... Uh, with an uh, unmarked, undelineated border. Okay, I'm going to move on, partly because I can't bear the thought of doing phytosanitary again with you, uh, (laughs) partly because there's other stuff I'd rather talk about. We might might come back to this. Just out of interest, if I were to ask you to rank your preferences and I gave you the choice between a no-deal Brexit, a this-deal Brexit, and no Brexit, how would you rank them?
1: Uh, No-deal... Theresa May's deal, and no Brexit. So no Brexit being the lowest. Uh, I I think the Prime Minister's deal is not as bad as remaining within the European Union. Okay, because some of your Eurosceptic colleagues have said they think it's worse. Yes, I I don't think that's right. I I think that um, although you lose say over some of the laws that would apply to you, the laws would only apply to you in a much smaller area, and that there would be no continuing payment after £39 billion had been paid, Um, and uh, the other issues, the fishing issues and so on, would revert back to us. So I I think her deal is better than remaining
0: in the EU. So imagine a couple of weeks down the line and Parliament has sort of arrived at a place where it looks very much as if there are two options. One is vote for the deal, which looks pretty much as it does now. And the second is that there might be be a majority for another referendum at that point would you reconsider and support the deal Um, you're beginning to sound like the chief whip Uh, (laughs) Uh, thank you I uh, (laughs) I,
1: think. for for the record I think very highly of Julian Smith I think he has perhaps the hardest job in British politics and does it with amazing diligence and unbelievable good humour when he must find some of us very trying to deal with but um, he's a very particularly me but he's a very patient man Um, the law is in place for us to leave without a deal and changing the law in spite of um, recent developments in relation to the Speaker and in spite of what Nick Bowles is trying to do is very hard and so how do you get a referendum in between now and the 29th of March Um, particularly when there's quite a number of Labour MPs who even if Jeremy Corbyn changes his mind uh, are not at all keen on a second referendum because they
0: represent seats where 60, to 70% voted to leave. I agree, I agree so, so, with that. But hypothetically, so, if that was the choice uh, you were confronted with, where it looked like they could somehow get a majority together, mm, maybe Corbyn's whipping his people uh, to back a referendum, uh, unlikely I know. Look, this
1: is the most boring answer, because I do answer hypothetical questions, because they're very often the most interesting questions. But this one, I think, is so unlikely to occur that I'm going to dodge it okay. and simply say, under those circumstances, we leave without a deal, because that's what the law says.
0: I mean, we're going to do a little bit on the withdrawal agreement now. Firstly, would you accept the fact that the notion of a Brexit dividend is fantasy? No, I've never accepted that. Uh, I
1: think that um, we make a net saving of £20 billion a year. I figure it would be very likely to rise in the next multi-annual financial framework Uh, and that we get economic benefits from being outside the common external tariff and having to apply the um, non-tariff barriers that the EU requires, which is the real benefit, actually.
0: But, I mean, again, I don't want to get into our former conversations about forecasts, but do you not accept that in the short term, at least, there will be some disruption caused by a change to our trading patterns while we adapt to the fact that actually we're having to trade with some people in a different way than we traded with them before? It'll become harder to trade with the European Union. We'll lose access to all those EU trade deals. So in the short term, at least, isn't it not conceivable that the aggregate economic impact on the economy is going to outweigh any putative saving from budget contributions? I,
1: I think there's a huge advantage from immediately lifting tariffs and non-tariff barriers on goods that we don't produce in this country, which you could do on day one of a WTO Brexit. That uh, On WTO Brexit, if we're not in any negotiations with the EU at that point, you know perfectly well that we either have to put our tariffs up on the EU mm-hmm. or reduce them on the rest of the world. You can do things with a first-come, first-served quota that means... Um, you can carry on broadly as as you are. It's not, not necessarily either a big cut or a big rise. Um, so that's something that we could we could put in place. Uh, the trade deals that the EU has with the rest of the world are very easy to innovate. That um, Liam Fox has been working on this. That uh, a very small number of them make up the bulk of the value. So. I think, the top half dozen or 80% of the value, but you need to mm-hmm. interview Peter Lilly to get the precise figures. Um, and then what happens with the EU? Well, with the EU, goods coming in, nothing changes in the short term because there are no facilities in place to make any changes. Uh, and with goods going out to the EU, uh, we have to be treated as well as the EU treats anybody else. And... Anybody else with whom it doesn't... with. On WTO yeah. but that includes the United States, which does great. But it has a series of arrangements um, with the United States. I mean, the EU has uh, well, a series
0: of bilaterals with the United
1: States. The, these are the technical bilaterals, it's got 100 with Russia, mm-hmm. but these are, half of them aren't actually to do with trade. They're to do with relationships beyond mm-hmm. trade. Um, and those are pretty routine. It would be very surprising if those arrangements didn't go into place almost automatically, because unless both sides were trying to be hostile to each other... It seems unlikely that the EU would treat the UK worse than it treats Russia. Um, So it has an obligation to facilitate trade under the WTO. And if you take Ireland, for example, Ireland checks physically 1% of non-EU imports. I think we all have this vision that there are lots of men with peak caps checking every container as it goes in, and that doesn't happen. The checks are nowadays pretty minimal. And it's interesting, I, I spoke to the head of uh, the customs for a major importer. Um, and once you're a established and trusted trader, who are people doing the bulk of the trade, uh, you pay your customs duties as you pay VAT at the end of the month with a single return and a cheque, and that your goods flow in. And actually, if you have a problem... You report it to the authorities because your relationship is worth much more than not doing so. The interesting example he gave me is that a consignment of their goods turned out to be a consignment of sand, that the container had been filled with sand and the goods had been stolen. And they reported this to HMRC and were able to work out precisely on the tracking where the lorry had stopped long enough for the um, switch to have been made. So trusted traders are doing this around the world already, bringing goods into this country, into the EU therefore, um, from all around the world. So no, I think the scare stories are much overdone and that trade processes are already very smooth and
0: sophisticated from outside the EU. I know I said I wouldn't do this, so I apologise, but I feel I have to. Ireland doesn't export much in the way of livestock or animal-related products from outside the EU, which partly explains why there are few future- so few checks, but if, there are, if you're talking about UK, Ireland, there's an enormous amount of it. And there you're gonna to have to have checks under those same WTO rules.
1: Uh, everything that goes from Great Britain uh, over to Northern Ireland is checked already. So that already happens. But so there's a no extra- But
0: portion that would be the case if there's no, within- There's it. no
1: extra check. Within um, uh, Ireland, the island of Ireland itself, um, yes, you would have to have checks, uh, but you don't have to have them on the border. Uh, that if you take Rotterdam, uh, these checks take place 12 miles away from the border. So you don't have the hard border issue, even though, yes, you do have checks. But actually, if you speak to farmers, there are quite a lot of checks on animal movements regardless. Regardless of whether you're moving them from Somerset to Gloucestershire, there are still checks. Indeed, I was speaking to a sheep farmer uh, who had to make regular reports on moving sheep from one field to another. So, uh, this area of life is very, very heavily bureaucratized mm-hmm. already.
0: Are you worried at all that the Leave campaigners have overpromised in terms of the benefits we'll get from leaving the European Union, and that there might be a sense of disappointment if those benefits don't all materialise immediately? Um, I mean, there was a campaign. I mean, a campaign. it's the nature of campaigns, isn't it?
1: I think the electorate understands what campaigns are about and that they are about explaining to people what may happen. Um, And that if you look at what the Leave campaign said, it said things that were inevitably the best gloss it could put on the information that it had available and the Remain campaign put the worst gloss on the information that it had available and people made a decision uh, on that. But um, interestingly, the government has made £350 million a week available for the NHS, which I think was very important because it was a major pro- promise mm-hmm. of the Leave campaign. Uh, and I think people expected that to to happen. The effects of leaving uh, will be both short-term and long-term. They will extend for many, many years. Um, uh, because the evidence is that freer trade does boost economic activity and there's also the issue with overregulation and our ability to have a more sensible regulatory system. So, no, I don't think there's mass over-promising, um, but I absolutely accept that, as with all campaigns, the Leave campaign put as good a gloss on its information as it could.
0: If you If you were ever Chancellor of the Exchequer, would you believe the forecast that your officials gave you?
1: Oh, well Nigel Lawson didn't, who was a very splendid Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, I I spent my business life looking at forecasts, and looking at forecasts on a company level, which is obviously much easier to do Mm -hmm. than on an economy level of earnings per share. And they never get it absolutely right. I mean, to be fair to them, I don't think they ever claim they do. That, that's right. And, and people view forecasts as if they are holy writ, and they're no more holy writ than weather forecasts. And there's a brilliant speech by Andrew Haldane, chief economist of the Bank of England, mm-hmm. that explains some of this. And it's, um, I think it's about 18 months ago, maybe a bit longer ago than that, but it's well worth looking up. It's on the Bank of England's website of, of speeches. And he goes through why did none of them really predict what was going to happen in two thousand and eight, and the answer is that forecasters are very good at saying next year will be broadly like this year.
0: Mm.
1: What they're very bad at doing is saying that there will be a fundamental change. They don't tend to spot those. Some forecasters get it much too early. So I could point to books I've got of people predicting the financial crisis from about two thousand and three onwards, because those sorts of timings of inflection points are very hard to get right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the bulk of forecasters, frankly, it's much safer if you want to keep your job to say that the economy will grow by between one5 and 3%. Because most years, that'll be broadly true. And everyone says, oh, good, he's done very well. He's either he's in the top 100 forecasters in the country. And you've got to be a very brave forecaster to say, oh, here's an inflection point, and I'm going this way rather than that way.
0: So this Brexit question is slightly... I mean, seeing as you mentioned weather, my colleague Jonathan Portes wrote a wonderful article in which he said the difference between short- and long-term economic forecasts is like the difference between weather and climate. Short-term economic forecasts are notoriously unreliable, and it's, you know, as if you turned on the telly in the morning, it says it isn't going to rain. You'd probably pack an umbrella anyway, because, you know, it's a 50% chance they're wrong. There is a huge body of evidence to suggest that something's happening to the climate. And he says that is more like the long-term economic forecasting that was used by the Treasury, by the Bank of England, to predict the medium-term impact of various sorts of Brexit. Do you have more faith in that kind of?
1: No, I don't. Um, I think that actually long-term economic forecast has an even worse record than short-term economic This isn't forecasting. an economic forecast it's, of it's, how well the economy does. Yeah, yeah. It is simply of the impact. Um, I think there you're, you're looking at what the economic policies are and it's much more a judgment. I, it's, and it's very hard to make the causal links that... I mean, I'm an ardent Thatcherite. I won't surprise you to know. And I think the economic reforms she made in the 1980s carried on having beneficial economic consequences uh, right the way through until the... Um, Uh, the financial crisis actually, I think the economic growth we had in that period owed a great deal to decisions she made that freed up the UK economy and got rid of um, price and incomes policies and all sorts of things that that she did. Um, But nobody was saying that at the time. It wasn't a body of economic evidence saying that these long-term economic impacts will be so important. And I think here, all the evidence is from every country that's done it, But opening up your markets to free trade, even unilaterally, leads to a long-term economic benefit. But But none of the long-term forecasters are including this in their forecasts. They are all saying that the only thing that helps is sticking to the current economic model. But this seems perverse when the European economic model has ostensibly failed. So clinging to a failed model is likely over 15 years to do better than having a free trade model that has worked everywhere else that's tried it.
0: But you're lumbered with the neighbours that you have, aren't you? And I mean, ultimately... You're ah, you're going to gravity models. Well, precisely. Yeah, but this but is the last on this. But, uh, okay, but gra- you're going to trade more with countries near you. Um, up to a point, Lord, copper. You're
1: going to tra- trade more copper. You're, you're going to trade things that are heavy more. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to trade high-value things. You're not going to trade services more. Services are much more global of the services that trade uh, internationally. Therefore... Haircuts and restaurants don't trade, Mm -hmm. but software services and financial services do. And those really aren't susceptible to gravity models. Cement um, exports, yes, of course they are, because the cost of transporting is disproportionate to the value of the commodity.
0: But gravity models have been very unsuccessful. Okay, I want to move on now, because we could spend ages on this. Uh, One other aspect of Brexit is you're a Conservative and Unionist Party member. Are you not worried that a no-deal would risk the future of the union. I say this because there was a poll by Lucid Talk in Northern Ireland uh, that showed that support for a united Ireland would shoot up in the event of a no-deal Brexit.
1: Well, there have been a number of polls in Northern Ireland and they're not conclusive as to what is, what is happening. Um, the DUP, who I think know the Northern Ireland political scene much better than I do, aren't of this view. That they strongly feel that the unionist community who they represent yeah. uh, is very much on side with what they're putting forward. Well, the part of, of the
0: unionist yeah, community.
1: Yeah, the part there, of but a, but, but a big part. And they obviously are very committed to the union. So, uh, and David Trimble, who was the leader of the Ulster Unionists and one of the leading architects of the uh, Belfast Agreement, likewise is um, in favour of the sort of Brexit I'm in favour of. So uh, I think some very senior unionists don't share these concerns, and there have been varieties of polls. I think with Scotland, it seems actually to be helping the union. And I think the reason for this is that if you're a Scottish nationalist and you want to have independence but be tied to Brussels, Mm -hmm. you're quite happy with Edinburgh-Brussels but you don't want Edinburgh, London, Brussels. If you take Brussels out, there aren't many people in Scotland who want just to have complete independence for Scotland. And there's a slight illogicality in saying, we hate having any, say, from Westminster, but therefore we'll handle our fish back to uh, Brussels. And I think particularly fishing, actually, would be very beneficial for the union with Scotland.
0: Leaving Scotland to one side, I mean, notwithstanding what your colleagues from the DUP say, do you not at least see the potential for significant movement in opinion in the event that we end up with a border between the North or South, or there's uncertainty because we leave without a deal? Well, I would once again point to who's going to put up this border.
1: Uh, the British government won't. And you say that the Irish government said, well, it might have to in the end. Well, they've made a number of statements. They're not all along those lines, actually. Some of them are that they never will. And bear in mind, the Irish government has historically thought that Northern Ireland should be part of its territory. It's a really, really hard thing for an Irish government to put up a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It's politically very difficult for them, even if ordered to by the European Union. And the European Union has made it clear it won't. Um, President Juncker went to the Irish Parliament and said uh, he, he wouldn't. Um, so then there's the uncertainty of the no deal. Well, again... If we leave on the 29th of March, we've left, and that is certainty. I, I think. When did you start saying if? Well, it's just always that, if until it's happened. Well, no, I think the last time we did this you said, said when. You said when? Well, yeah. that's what the law says. So, I'm just curious. I know, it was just a slip of All the not. Right, okay.
0: <laughs> Don't read too much. Right. Know. Too late. Um, <laughs> Okay, I want to come back to politics, actually, because that's really yeah. what I wanted to focus on. And one of the things about Brexit is it's doing funny things to our party system, isn't it? Because it's... I mean, one of the things I felt today watching the Conservatives stand up in defence of a Prime Minister that they'd humiliated yesterday was just how... What obvious relish people like Anna Soubry took in being back with their mates, being cheered by their own benches, because actually Brexit has changed all that, and it's cut through parties. Now... A, would you accept that it's causing enormous strain within the Conservative Party? Oh, it causes enormous strain within all
1: parties. You you you, you see this that, that um, I, I mean, the Labour Party has pretty much a north-south split in terms of Brexit, particularly in terms of its its voter base. Uh, the Conservative Party has been split over the European Union since the time of Harold Macmillan. It's not a new split, mm. but your point is such a good one. Um, I happened to be standing a few feet away from Dominic Grieve when the result of the uh, uh, no confidence vote came through and he was cheering as loudly as anybody. We are, as Conservatives, tribally close. And being part of the team is important. And we like being part of the team. and We like the team to win. And that's why it's, there's quite a high threshold before people vote against the government. And so, yes, it's done funny things to parties, but there is an ultimate party loyalty.
0: Would you accept that in that sense, Jeremy Corbyn has been a far better Conservative chief whip than anyone on your own benches?
1: Well, actually, I think you ought to give a little credit to the Prime Minister because she really forced his hand yesterday.
0: No, no. Uh, absolutely. But, but, but what I'm uh, yeah, saying yeah. is, had there been a less scary leader of the opposition, do you oh, think. Oh, sorry. That, I yeah. thought
1: you meant on having the vote of no. No, conference. no. I mean, actually, the. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, Who would you have had who would have made the Conservatives think this was an attractive party? It's a very interesting question. Um, Ed Miliband wouldn't have worked in that respect. He would have been too left-wing for most Conservatives. Um, It's an interesting thought where, had they gone for Liz Kendall, for example... Um, would a number of conservatives have thought, well, this is a party that we could join? Uh, There's a very, but not, very but not interesting. Not a party that you could join. Well, but, but, but a party that you, you you wouldn't
0: mind letting into government, and therefore. Yeah, I mean, sometimes parties in power against, get tired, don't they? They look over and they yeah, think, yeah. all right, it's not great, but. Who
1: would who would be that Tony any Blair? And and and. and, and Tony Blair is not very popular anymore. That's not a statement of the blindingly obvious. I do apologise for saying something so, so, so straightforward. Um, uh, but there was a time when he was amazingly popular. Okay,
0: but was. Uh, and,
1: and made conservatives think that in 1997 there was no harm in electing a Labour leader. And it's fascinating to think who is that figure in the Labour Party today? Who, uh, if he or she took over from Jeremy Corbyn tomorrow, would make Conservatives feel they didn't need to back the government in a no-confidence vote because a Labour administration would be livable with.
0: But were it another duo, a more centrist, for want of a better phrase, duo than Corbyn and MacDonald, do you not think that those divisions in the Conservative Party would be far worse than they are now? Because actually, it would at least be conceivable in a way that it really
1: isn't with this. I think there's truth in that. I think the other thing, worth bearing in mind that Jeremy Corbyn has consistently been a Eurosceptic. And as far as one can tell, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't changed his political opinion on anything for his whole political career. He's the most consistent man. And he was always in the division lobby with Bill Cash against extensions of the power of the European Union. Um, A journalist friend of mine looked up his speeches on the customs union from early in his parliamentary career and he was more antagonistic towards the customs union. Than even I am. This is quite a record of that. And so, when you look at a vote of confidence as tonight, if you're a pro-European, you're saying, "Do I want to leave Europe, led by Theresa May, or do I want to leave, lead Europe, led by Jeremy Corbyn?" And that's not a very difficult question. Mm-hmm. Another leader who might be saying, "Well, actually, we should stay." You're quite right. Could have peeled off people to feel it was safe to vote against
0: the government in a no-confidence vote. I asked Nicky Morgan this question using you as an example, but I have to ask you given the, 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 the shock that Brexit has been to our party system, do you politically feel closer to Ken Clark or Nigel Farage?
1: Um, I think on balance, it remains Ken Clark. This is partly the pull of the tribe that we are in the same party and um, UKIP. Uh, is, a, is, a, is a different party, and since he's left, is a very problematic party. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kenneth Clark, when he was a minister in the 80s and 90s, did very conservative things. Other than Europe, he was a very Thatcherite minister. So, once, it, I, mean, I, I know it's a, a bit like, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? But uh, other than the European issue, <laughs> There's more I agree with than with Ken Clark probably than with, with Nigel Farage. I, I went to speak for um, uh, Dominic Grieve and in his constituency a couple of years ago. And as it was Dominic, I thought it was tactless to talk about Europe. So I talked about other conservative issues. And I was very struck that when Dominic stood up to give the vote of thanks, he said, look, when we don't talk about Europe, there's not a word Jacob said that I don't agree with. There is so much I agree with Dominic on, and he's a man I admire greatly, actually, one of the most intelligent men in Parliament. We just disagree on this one and very important issue, but we are both equally good Conservatives.
0: And you don't think that the Europe issue is try, is, is stretching those other bonds? I mean, what do you make of the, mm. the, the, the talk about uh, a new political party, a new centrist political party emerging with elements from your party within it?
1: Um, it's one of those things that people talk about. It's very much harder to do in practice than mm-hmm. it is in theory. Um, over the centuries, there's been lots of talk of new political parties. They very, very rarely come into fruition, and they very rarely start in Parliament. And the, the, Neither UKIP nor the Labour Party, the two sort of big new forces started in Parliament. The SDP started
0: in Parliament and fizzled out within 10 years. Though we have at the moment a situation where members of your own party have said they will resign the whip if the government adopts as policy something that you're very relaxed about. Um, well, let's see what happens.
1: See whether people do, in fact, resign the whip. And let's see whether the government does adopt what I want as what I would live with as policy, not want. I would like a deal for preference. Um, because the government is trying very hard to get a deal. Do
0: you, do you think that? if when we leave in March, the division over Europe within your party will begin to heal or is this just gonna become a sore that persists because we'll be negotiating trade with the European Union for so long, there'll doubtless be a campaign to rejoin that is started pretty soon after we leave. Can you see any way of overcoming this division? I think certainty helps
1: and therefore having left is beneficial. I, I think the next 70 days will be the um, toughest because if you are a Remainer, now is the time for you to do everything you can to frustrate Brexit. That is your main political motive for the next 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the pressure, the anger, the division will be at its worst for these next 10 weeks. But once we've left... Rejoining is a very different prospect, Um, different part Mm -hmm. of the treaties, would least formally require membership of the Euro and of Schengen, would increase our contributions because there would be no rebate. That's a very different argument. So I think it gets easier after the 29th of March, but as a counter to that, and I'm sure people in this room have, have found it as well, that in some instances the relationships people have have been soured by differences on Brexit. I I did a little programme with Channel 4 News um, with Alistair Campbell, um, who is much more charming than I had expected him to be. Um, I enjoyed doing it with him. But we met this man, it was very, very sad. He was a, a surgeon and um, married to a German lady, and he had told her that he'd waited to leave, and the marriage had come to an end. And you just thought, good heavens, that this has had a really profound effect on people's lives, a- a- and one that isn't easily mended. And there will be cases of that, um, I hope not often as serious as that, that are hard to mend after the 29th uh,
0: of March. You saw compelling and sustained evidence that public opinion had turned against Brexit. I mean, I think the poll of polls now is 54-46 again, so it's still quite close. But if, say, the polls were doing 60-40 or 65-35, would you think we should have another vote before we left, or would you reconsider? No, I think we have to leave. That
1: that, we have to respect the first vote before you get into a second vote. I think if you have a second vote, which is a legitimate thing to have at some stage, it's on rejoining. I think to say, oh, the opinion polls have moved a bit, therefore let's um, test the water again, is like saying after government's been in office for a year, the polls have moved against it and therefore we must have a new general election. I think you have to do what you voted on first. And then if a party wishes to campaign the next election for a new referendum to reverse the policy, whatever, that becomes legitimate.
0: And what do you think would happen were we to have by some... Manner all means a second referendum
1: before we elect. Okay.
0: So what is your feeling? I'm on?
1: against a second referendum for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think it's undemocratic. Secondly, I think it would be stunningly divisive. I, mean, I, I think the 17.4 million people who voted to leave, some of them would be very angry indeed if they were told their first vote didn't count after the government said very clearly that this is your decision, this is going to determine whether we leave or remain. So I think the divisions we've currently got would be minor in comparison to what you could see. Um, But having said all that, I think if there were a second referendum, um, it would be tell them again. And I think that you would find the vote wasn't actually about Brexit, it was about democracy. And are we the type of country that follows a democratic mandate or not? It wouldn't be about the details of the backstop. It wouldn't be about Clause 174 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which, as I'm sure you all knew immediately, uh, is the one that deals with the um, authority of the European Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be on fundamental democracy, and therefore I think you would get a bigger vote uh, to leave.
0: And if we got a narrow vote to remain, would you
1: let it be? No, of course not. If we got a a 48-52 the other way around... I would be immediately saying best of three. I would also, I would also say, that if we had a second referendum and Remain didn't get over seventeen point four million votes, that that would not be a result that trumped the previous referendum.
0: Okay. Do you do you think that we have a problem with the sort of? tone of politics at the moment, that it is so divisive, it is so aggressive. We've seen those scenes outside College Green recently. And do you think that's deteriorated or has it always been? It goes in waves. We had a
1: very quiet period, really, between 1997 and 2010, where there seemed to be a convergence amongst the parties. We didn't seem to have great issues coming up in front of us and we had a natural Labour government, so everyone was happy, you see. Well, <laughs> but it carried, it carried on into the first five years of David Cameron. Actually, I should have extended it to 2015. Um, uh, and it looked as if politics uh, was not as forthright as it was. And of course, though you say it was Labour government, part of this was achieved by Tony Blair moving into as many Conservative positions as he could, at least before the 1997 election, it changed a bit afterwards. And we're now back to a position that we've had in our history before. Certainly during the 1980s, politics was very mm. divisive. And um, if you go back, where do you want to go back to? Go back to um, the um, Captain Swing Rides in the 1830s. I mean, you, you, get, you do get lots of pressure points in our history, and then you get periods of great calm in the 1950s politics was pretty calm, probably quite boring.
0: What what are the main lessons you learned from the referendum in terms of what we need to do in Britain in terms of public... I mean, beyond the obvious, leave the European Union, whether... I mean, some people have drawn lessons about the left behind, about the North-South divide, about intergenerational fair, about all sorts of things. What, for you, have been the major policy lessons?
1: I I mean, I I think the left behind is the key argument. I think as a conservative we need to learn from our history. And what the Israelis great success was, and really helped the party win elections for generations, mm-hmm. was that we were concerned about what he called the condition of the people and making sure that people's lives got better and by taking steps to ensure that happened. And in his case, it was um, public health and housing, particularly important. And to help people lead the lives that they want to lead, and help them ensure that they and their children are a little bit better off than their parents were, and that natural human ambitions that we want to support across the country, and how do you do that? And I think we've had a very London-centric politics, and we've tended to do things that are good for London, mm-hmm. but actually keep wages down in Hartlepool, and I think we need to move away from that.
0: I mean, it's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? Because my first thought when, when Theresa May gave that speech when she first became Prime Minister outside Downing Street, I thought it was a very, very good speech, was it doesn't sound like what I think Conservatives sound like. I mean, w- did you look at the 2017 manifesto and say, yeah, that's a good, normal Tory manifesto, I can support that? I thought the Prime Minister's aim was
1: right, but that the policies were not necessarily the right ones. I mean, I... I um, One of the things I would really like to do is I think that the Laffer curve works with people on low incomes as well as people on high incomes. I would like a major focus of government policy to be to reduce the withdrawal rate of benefits from people on universal credit, from the 63% rate Mm -hmm. with an initial target of 50% and try and get it down, because that is the real incentive for people to work and to do more. They actually keep what they are earning. And that, I think, helps people's standard of living rise. Actually, I think the European Union is a huge advantage because the removal of tariffs and non-tariff barriers, reducing the cost of living, but also restricting the free movement of labour. Because the free movement of labour keeps down the wages at the lowest end of the scale. It doesn't affect them at the middle and higher ends. And I think you'd accept that that's where the economic evidence seems to be. Yeah, but it's only a a relatively small impact in the aggregate figures. But it's a very important impact if you're living on a low income. And it makes it harder for people um, who may well have been let down by the education system and so on to get into the habit and system of working and if you combine that with a lower rate of withdrawing benefits you give people the support and a financial incentive to to be in work and to be more successful and I think that's really important and I think it does require uh, leaving the European Union and the restriction of free movement.
0: Would you accept that the policies pursued by since the coalition government since 2010 particularly the austerity policies have had exactly the opposite impact on some of the poorest and most, most vulnerable people in this country?
1: Um, No, I don't think that's fair. I think there have been problems with rolling out the universal credit. Uh, And I think that the Treasury not only gets its its forecasts wrong, Mm -hmm. but is always a penny wise and a pound foolish. And I think you've really seen that with the universal credit, where it tried to save relatively small amounts of money against the whole budget, Mm -hmm. which have made the system... It's sort of random. Um, I've had a constituent come back to see me who is paid four weekly rather than monthly. So twice a year gets no money. But because the government says, oh, you've been paid twice in the month and therefore you're not eligible for any. But that actually when you average it out over the whole year... Mm. But in the end, over the whole year, my constituent doesn't get any less money it's just there are a couple of months where the cash flow doesn't come in and the system has been designed not to smooth that and I think Amber Rudd's latest changes will help with that and it's those sorts of things that in an effort to save little bits of money uh, the Treasury didn't allow for. The five and previously six-week delay in giving people money, I mean, this is just ridiculously unfair. I doubt there's anybody in this room who could go five or six weeks without getting their money paid to them. It's just not reasonable And, and that, I think... Is the fault of, of the Treasury.
0: But isn't it more systematic than that? I mean, there's a, there's a, re, a report from the Equality Commission that said that since uh, that tax and welfare reform, since the Tories took over in 2010, will reduce lone parent income by as much as 20% by 2022.
1: Well, well, but I, I, th- this is assuming um, that people aren't getting into work. And as you know, this is, I'm afraid, the one slogan for the evening, the best way out of poverty is into work. And you look at the phenomenal success in encouraging people uh, into work, which has been... Okay extraordinary,
0: much more than anybody expected. And that really does help get people out of poverty. But even granted that, at the same time, those who aren't in work are getting hit by having their benefits removed or reduced. That's well, not well,
1: dealing it, with the injustices in society. Well,
0: part of it is the incentive to, I mean, the penalties are there to incentivize people to be in work. Would you not accept that that red bus, the famous red bus, was as much an anti-austerity bus as it was an anti-EU bus? The red NHS on the side. That was the, that was the subliminal message of that bus to many of these people, wasn't it?
1: It's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought of that in those terms. Um, I actually <laughs> genuinely thought it was that money was needed for the NHS. And why do I think that? Because I'm a fiscal hawk. I'm not in favour of... Mm Splashing out government money on all sorts of things, and there are lots of government expenditures I'd like to see cut, starting with HS2, which would be a very big saving. Anyway, leaving that to one side. um, When we were elected in 2010, a number of my hawkish conservative friends thought it was a mistake to exclude the NHS from austerity. Mm -hmm. And I didn't agree with them because the NHS has consistently had above-inflation Um, increases in spending because health inflation has tended to be above the ordinary inflation rate. And therefore enforcing for a number of years a real terms freeze was in fact, in health service terms, a significant real terms cut. And that, speaking to serious-minded people in my own constituency, I realised that that couldn't go on because... These are people who, in 2010, were saying, look, we need to do this. We understand austerity. There is fat in the system. We can cope. Who, by 2015, 2016, were saying, we cannot do this for another couple of years. This is just become... We can do this year, but that's it. And if you carry on like this, we will be cutting operations and so on. And when serious-minded people start telling you that, you think they're probably right And I thought it was a feeling that the pressures on the NHS had become such that people thought it did need more money. But I'm very interested by what you say. I I, I think you you may well be right. Talk about it it next time. Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) We're just about to run out of time, and I want to do my quick fire round, but I want to ask you one final question, which is a nice, easy one. Who do you want to be the next leader of the Conservative Party?
1: Oh, um, if there were a leadership contest tomorrow, Mm -hmm. I would support Boris Johnson. OK. Right. Ready? We've got some. That was quick a nice laugh. At least somebody doing, <laughs> paying attention at the back. A quick fire round. A quick fire. I hate quick fire rounds. Excellent. Beer or burgundy? Ooh. A serious question. Yes, um, uh, burgundy.
0: The Beatles or the Stones? Neither. Oh good. <laughs> <word>. <laughs>
1: Well, all right. It has to be The Rolling Stones because of my father's uh, piece who breaks a butterfly on a wheel uh, that ended up getting Mick Jagger out of um, jail. And out of filial piety, I'll back The Rolling Stones. That is without doubt the most
0: curious answer we've had to that (laughs) question. Uh, Cheddar or camembert? Oh, cheddar. I don't like those smelly cheeses. OK, I'm not even sure it's worth... Oasis
1: or Blur? The question is a blur, let alone... (laughs) This
0: is going well. Beef Bourguignon, or steak and ale pie. Oh, steak and ale pie, unquestionably. I think I'd have predicted all these. UK in <laughs> a Changing Europe or any other think tank. Oh, UK in a Changing oh, Europe is, a, is a, a heroic think tank. Super, Jacob. Thank, thank you, you so very much. Before you thank go, you. before sorry. Oh. Oh. Let me present you with. Ooh. A thank beer you very and much.
1: Well, I have to tell you, this will not be used for beer, <laughs> but. It will will be used for cider because I'm a Somerset MP and I make my own cider. I mean, I confess I have a little bit of help, uh, not just from the children. Um, And last year we made 25 gallons. So I have a good supply uh, of of cider and this will be perfect. I will be able to have a pint of of cider. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs)